Father, we thank you and praise you for the love and the grace that we've already received from you in your word today. We pray now for the reading and preaching of your word that we would not just hear it, but that we'd be challenged and changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I was getting just a little warm. Hope you don't mind. Took off my coat. You don't mind, right, guys? Welcome uh, to Third Church. We're so grateful that you're here. If you've been with us at all over the last couple of months, you'll know that we have been in a series we're calling The Questions of Jesus. We're just looking at a few of the literally hundreds of questions that Jesus asked throughout the Gospels. And what we're discovering with these questions is that Jesus is asking, he asks so many questions, not because he's trying to test or analyze uh, or examine people, but because he wants to know people and he wants them to be known. And that's what these questions are all about. And we're now continuing and wrapping up this series with a few stories from post, the post-resurrection stories in which Jesus continues to ask questions. So our text this morning picks up from where we were two weeks ago. Do you remember we were talking about the road to Emmaus uh, and the two disciples met Jesus on the road? Well, after that story, they run back and they tell the disciples, they come to the upper room to tell them what they've seen. And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 24, verse 36. So let's Hear God's word. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? There's our question for today. See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you got anything here to eat? And then he gave them, they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. And then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then fast forward about 40 days, Luke does, and then he says, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? That's the question that we're looking at today. I think when it comes to faith, Uh, especially faith in something as crazy and audacious as a man risen from the dead. When it comes to faith, I think it is very common for people of faith to struggle with profound questions, troubles, and doubts when it comes to their faith. This has certainly been a part of my own personal story of faith. Um, I became a Christian when I was kind of a young 10 or 11 years old, and I was raised in a community that was deeply Christian, and I never asked any hard questions. I never had any doubts. I never really asked any tough things about my faith. But then I went to a big secular public university, and I was thrust into a highly diverse, pluralistic environment. 
And I started to meet lots of people, and I met lots of friends who practiced other religions and practiced different faiths and who were really good people and who were kind and who were thoughtful and reflective. And I was studying religion, and I was studying philosophy, and I was getting deeply challenged in my faith. I remember one particular class that I took uh, was taught by a former nun who had renounced her faith and become a philosophy professor. Uh, the name of her class was Faith in Doubt, but we joked it should be called Doubt in Doubt because all we did was read Friedrich Nietzsche. Um, and so it was in the midst of this whole experience that I had a major crisis of faith. I, I, I didn't even know what I believed anymore. I didn't know why I believe anymore. I asked myself, do I believe what I believe just because I happen to be born in a Christian family in America in the 20th century? Um, is that why I believe what I believe? What about people who were born in other times and places? What about my friends that I know who practice other religions? Who, who is God really? And is he really even there? And I had this, I just remember how, what a crisis it was for me, not just intellectually, but in my life. I remember have, sitting in the chapel at UVA, sobbing, trying to pray, could not pray, crying out to God, feeling like no one, absolutely no one was there. And now, your own struggles with doubt may not have been so philosophical or, or uh, pronounced, but my guess is, is that if you are a Christian and that you have attempted to practice your faith for any short period of time at all, that you have at some point come across some sort of struggle or doubt or question when it comes to your faith. It may not be intellectual. It may be existential. Maybe you have been praying and praying and face unanswered prayer. Maybe the cancer that you feared has returned and you don't know why. Maybe the marriage that you were seeking to save has fallen apart and you don't understand why God didn't intervene or the child that you hoped would be healed died instead. We all face these horrific things that cause these existential crises in our lives that cause us to ask profound questions about God and about our faith. And I want you to know, dear family, I want you to know it's okay. It's, it's okay to wrestle with doubt. In fact, I, I personally am more concerned for people who never have any struggles and who never ask any hard questions and who just go through life too busy or too indifferent to ever ask any really difficult questions about what they believe because what eventually happens is that they face some serious crisis or pain or suffering as all of us do and they get wrecked. They are defenseless because they've never had the opportunity to reflect deeply about what they believe. Tim Keller says that a faith without doubt is like a body without white blood cells. A body without antibodies. Christians should, because of just simply the, the, the chaotic and nonsensical world that we live in, Christians should wrestle hard with doubts and questions and severe concerns about our faith. And we should take seriously the doubts and the questions of our non-believing friends and neighbors, because only when we do that do we, first of all, become convinced and our faith really becomes our own. And only when we wrestle with the doubts and questions of the world do we become compassionate witnesses who can come alongside those with compassion and empathy for the struggles of others. And so our question this morning is, not so much what do we do with our doubts and our questions, but what does Jesus do with us? What does the Lord Jesus think about our struggles? What does he think about the doubts and the questions and the betrayals of his disciples? What does he think about the hard struggles of people like you and me? And what we see in this story is just, of course, beautiful Jesus doing the thing that Jesus does. I think we see him handling the doubts of his friends 
in three ways in this story, and I really think it's three ways, not just because I'm a Presbyterian pastor, but just because it is three ways. We see him first challenging, and then we see him comforting, and we see him commissioning. And I kind of made up the three C's. That's not Jesus, that's me. <laughs> he challenges their minds, he comforts their hearts, and then he commissions their community. That's how Jesus handles struggling, doubting disciples. Are you all with me? Okay, let's first look at how he challenges their minds. The first thing we notice in this story is that Jesus is very deliberately proving to his disciples that it really is him. It's really him, the risen Jesus. He's really risen up from the grave. You can see, imagine the scene. They're in the upper room. Uh, they're confused. They've been hiding out there for fear of their lives. They've heard these strange stories that the women have told them and that these, now these two disciples on the road. And suddenly, Jesus is there standing in the midst. Hey, guys, what's up? It's me. He says, peace to you. That was just like a, what's up? It's just a greeting. It's me. And they're like, nuh-uh. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's me. Look. Look, see, see the scars on my hand and see the, the wound in my side? It's really me. No, no, no. I mean, you could just see them freaking out. And he's like, no, no, touch me. Flesh and bone. It's me. Still, they don't believe. And finally, he's like, Y'all got any fish sticks, mac and cheese, anything, leftovers? I mean, not only has Jesus been in the grave for three days, and so I'm sure he's very hungry, but he's really trying to even demonstrate to them that this is not a hallucination. This is not some corporate group think wish fulfillment, but that this is really him, a ghost, a spirit, a hallucination cannot make a plate of food disappear. It really is me. So what, what I think is important to note here is this, is that sometimes I think uh, us modern progressive folks look back on the first century, we look at things like this and we say, oh, those first century people, they, of course they believed in things like miracles and resurrections. You know, they, they lived in this sort of draconian, you know, pre-scientific worldview where they expected things like this to happen and you know, we're, we're so beyond that. Of course, we know better. You know, we have science. We know the way the world works. Of course, they would be duped to gullible think, think things like this. Well, of course, that's not true at all. Look, I mean, what we see from this story is that they were terrified. They were not expecting this. This did not comport with their view of the world. Jesus did not show up and they say, oh, yes, of course, this perfectly fits with our pre-scientific first century worldview. No, they were completely skeptical. They could not believe this. This was not what they were expecting. Even after the women reported seeing the risen Jesus, even after a couple of them actually went to see the open tomb, they still refused to believe. No, what I want you to see is the resurrection was inconceivable to even the earliest first century disciples. It was just as impossible for them to believe as it is for many of us. And yet, they did believe. They did believe. And why? They believed, not because they desperately wanted to or because they were gullible or they were duped into it. No, they believed because the evidence was so irrefutably clear. It was so reasonable that they believed. You know, sometimes I think we pit uh, faith, especially in the popular culture, faith is pitted against reason. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who you might know is a, a very well-known apologist for the atheist movement, um, wrote this, he said, uh, faith is the great cop-out. 
the great excuse to evade the need to think. Faith is belief in spite of, or even because, perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Or as Mark Twain put it, faith is believe in what you know ain't so. Now, is that really true? Is faith the opposite of reason? Is faith what you need when you can't explain something or you don't have any evidence at all? Of course not. That's just dumb. Look, these people didn't believe despite the evidence. They believed because of it. They believed because during the six weeks period of Easter, between Easter and Pentecost, Jesus showed up so many times, made so many incontrovertible appearances, at one point to over 500 people at the same time, Paul says, that the resurrection was so clear, so obvious, that it became irrefutable. Even people who were deeply resistant to the faith, like James, his half-brother, who was always the holdout, even James crossed over into belief and became one of the leaders of the early church of one of its earliest martyrs. No, they actually saw him. This was not a hallucination. This was not a cover-up. The risen Jesus completely changed a group of fearful disciples hiding in the upper room into a courageous movement that went to their deaths proclaiming that Jesus is alive. <laughs> now, why is this so important? Why is this important that we believe in the historical uh, verification of the resurrection? Well, here's why. Because the message, and this is really, if, if, you, if you just ignored everything that I just said, could you just hear me on this? The message of Christianity is good news about something that happened in history. This is why Christianity is different from all other faiths in the world. Every other faith system or religion or even faith in science or politics draws its meaning from good advice that it provides to its adherents. Understand? Live this way, act this way, observe these rituals or these rules, all will go well. But the Christian faith is completely different because our faith is not in a system of ethics. Our faith is not in how well you can follow the morals of the Bible. Our faith is in a literal act in history in which a man who claimed to be God lived, died, rose, and ascended. That our faith is not in what we do for God, but what God has done for us. Our faith is not good advice. It is good news. Good news in something that has verifiably happened in history. It is rooted in the historical fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that's why Paul says, if Christ were not raised, then we are the most pathetic of all people. Either our faith is historically verifiable, or it's nothing. It's dumb. It's childish. It's pathetic. So we don't believe in a moral system. We believe in the actions of another person who accomplished something on our behalf. He lived, died, and rose in history. And it's true. And so I think this is encouraging to us that Jesus is challenging our doubts in this way because it was helpful to me, and I think it can be for some of you, that if you're struggling with your faith to remember that God is not asking you to believe despite the evidence. He's not asking you to take a blind leap of faith. No, we have history on our side. We have fact on our side. Our faith is not in a myth. It is in a verifiable fact of history. It really happened. Christ is risen, and he is reigning. So he challenges our minds, okay? But the second thing I think that we see here, and this is really the heart of the passage, is that he comforts our hearts. He comforts our hearts. You know, if you are like me and you have often wrestled with doubt, you'll know that doubt is always more than an intellectual experience. It's, it's an experience of the heart. And this is why I love that Jesus says, uh, why do doubts rise in your hearts? Because I think we know that when you really struggle with your faith, 
um, it can really affect your life. You can feel anxious and fearful about where your questions are going to lead you. Um, you can feel cut off or estranged from your friends and your faith community. And you can ultimately feel spiritually alone, abandoned by God. My own experience of doubt has been that it is often, my doubt has often been a trigger for depression in my life. And as a pastor, I've known many people who have struggled with their faith for years. And after going so long, feeling so far from God and so uncertain about their faith, many folks feel like they wouldn't even know how to get back to God, even if they wanted to. And that fills them with a sense of hopelessness. So doubt is not just an intellectual struggle, it's an experiential struggle. And one of the reasons I love this passage is what Jesus does for people who are struggling in this way. He, we see him in this passage coming alongside struggling people who are wrestling and confused and full of shame because of their betrayals and mistakes. And he comes alongside them, he reaches out to them, he pursues them, and he reminds them of his faithfulness to them. That's what Jesus does. Think about this, friends. In the six-week period of Eastertide, between Easter and Jesus' ascension, Jesus has six weeks, six weeks, to establish his kingdom on the earth that would last for millennia. Six weeks. Now, if you were Jesus and you had six weeks to do that and you had just risen from the dead and conquered sin, death, and hell, what would you do in a six-week period? I'll tell you what I'd do. First, I'd go to Rome and I'd show up in Caesar's palace. I'd walk right into his throne room and say, hey, man, how you like this? Mm -hmm. I'm risen from the dead. Who's king now? That's what I would do. And then I would go to Herod and I'd do the same thing. And then I'd go to Pontius Pilate and I'd do the same thing. And then maybe I'd show up at the temple and talk to the Sanhedrin and talk to the Pharisees, have a little chat with them. And then maybe I'd mosey over to Mars Hill and talk to the Greek philosophers and change the course of Greek philosophy for the next thousand years. That's what I'd do. How about you? Now, but that's not what Jesus does. Here's what he does. In that six-week period, he does one thing and one thing only. He shows up and encourages his demoralized friends. That's what he does. He, challenge, he encourages them. He comforts them. He doesn't reprimand or scold them for their doubts. He affirms his love for them, and he assures them, despite all their struggles, of his faithfulness to them. And the lesson that we learn here is this, is that it is not our faith that keeps us on the path when we're struggling. It's the faithfulness of Jesus. He is the faithful one. We struggle. We go through periods of dryness. We are faltering. We get confused. We betray. We fall to temptation. But Jesus, he keeps showing up. He keeps interceding. He keeps loving. He keeps forgiving. He keeps serving. And in the end, it is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is the strength of the faithfulness of Jesus to you. That is the gospel. His constant, never-stopping love that remains faithful to us. I love, don't you love the story in Mark chapter 6 where the man brings his young uh, son to Jesus and he asks him to be healed. And Jesus says, do you have the faith that he's healed? And the man says, uh, not sure I don't think I do, I believe, help my unbelief. He expresses his doubt. And what does Jesus say? What you, you, you want to go back home and work out your doubts and your questions and come back until you are fully surrendered to me and you have all your questions answered? You come back then, then I'll heal your son. No. He says, that's all I need, friend. I need you to just look to me. 
Because in all your doubts, it's not your faith that saves your son. It's my faithfulness to you. See, sometimes I think as Christians, we confuse faith and we make it into a work. You know, we start to think, oh, uh, I'm saved by faith in Christ. So, so, well, I guess I can't go to God because my faith is not strong and I have all these questions and I've been far away for so long and I stumbled in all of these ways and failed. And what that does, it, that's turning your faith into a work. And what we just finished saying was, is that the gospel is that you are saved not on the basis of your performance and what you do, but on what Jesus Christ has done for you in history, how he has lived and died and risen for you. You are saved on the basis of another one's performance, not your own. And so when you struggle and say, like, I can't go to God because I don't have enough faith or I've been far from God for too long or my faith isn't pure enough, you are turning your faith into a work. You are trying to save yourself, but it is not your strong faith that saves you. It is the strong faithfulness of Jesus. He loves you, and he's going to keep on showing up for you. He accepts and receives you again and again. So listen, family, listen. Don't let anything keep you from God. Don't let your doubts, don't let your fears, don't let those dark thoughts that you're afraid that anyone will ever know about keep you from God. Don't let those things prevent you from coming to him. Go to him and say to him, even like that man said, help my unbelief because you are saved, not by the strength of your faith, but by the strength of his faithfulness to you. I love the story that um, James Torrance tells, who's a Scottish pastor and theologian, and he was once teaching on the West Coast and one early morning, he went out to walk, and he saw an older man walking the beach, and they started a conversation, and the man confided in him and said, my wife of 50 years is dying, and I don't know how I'm going to face the future without her, and I don't know how I'm going to face the future without faith, because he said, you know, I was raised in the church, but I left the church long ago, and now I'm trying to pray, but I can't. I'm trying to have faith, but I don't. What do I do? What would you tell a man like that? Well, here's what Torrance said. Instead of encouraging him to have more faith or pray harder, he said, listen, brother, you are trying to pray, but in Jesus you have one who is praying for you. And you are trying to hold on, but in Jesus you have one who is holding on to you. You are trying to carry forward, but in Jesus you have one that is carrying you. So stop looking to yourself and your weakness. Look to him in his strength. Because not your doubt or your fears or death itself, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Look to him, not you. And it changed him. It changed that man. And so I want you to know, friends, if you're a Christian and you are trying to live in this veil of suffering tears, there will be times of great clarity and conviction and joy where God feels very near. And there will be times in your faith that feel very dry, like God is nowhere to be found. And you have profound questions and you don't know how they're ever going to get answered. And I want you to know that in those seasons especially, in your betrayals, in your fears, God is holding on to you in Christ. It is his faithfulness that saves you. Rest in his love. That's grace. So he comforts our hearts. He challenges our minds. And one last thing we see him do is he commissions our community. Look at what happens here at, at the end in verses 45 and 46. Jesus does this little Bible study with them, like he does with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. He teaches them that all of Scripture is basically about him. And, and then he says this, he says, and not only is it about me, but repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all nations and the whole world will come to know that I am the one who has come to redeem and to save. And they're like, great, Jesus, that sounds like an awesome story. Who's going to take care of that? And Jesus says, you. You. 
You are my witnesses. You will be my agents of renewal. It's your job to get out of this room, to get out of Jerusalem, and to get into the world. You will be my witnesses in all the earth. Now, if you are one of the angels up in heaven watching this, you're thinking, Jesus, do you know what you're doing here? <laughs> I mean, these guys are lunkheads. These guys, these betraying, questioning, struggling, failing group of disciples, you're using them. These doubters, you're using them. These skeptics, you're using them to bring your good news to the world. And Jesus says, yep, that." That's it. I have no plan B. That's it. And he's still saying that to us. He's saying, you are my witnesses. Jesus is alive. He's reigning. He's spreading his gospel. He's restoring the world. He's renewing all things. He's bringing his shalom. And his strategy, believe it or not, is us. Us broken, messed up, crooked people with all of our questions and all of our doubts and all of our fears. There's no plan B. That's his plan. And the key in all of this is verse 48. He says, you are my witnesses. Now, if you've ever been in a court of law, you'll know that what the witness does, the witness only does one thing. The witness points. The witness says, it was him. It was her. It was that. It was there. Witnesses don't have to be very smart. Witnesses certainly don't have to have all their questions answered. And witnesses don't have to have it all together. The only job of the witness is to point. And that is the call of the church, to be a pointing community. And we are not pointing to ourselves. We're not pointing to how great we are and how wonderfully our lives are and how well we believe. I, do, I have never known someone to become a Christian because they were so impressed by the smug superiority of a Christian. I have never known that to happen. <laughs> In fact, I would say we are more effective witnesses when we are those who are honest about our struggles and honest about our doubts and our fears and our questions, honest about the times of failure in our lives, and yet we point not to ourselves but to the one who is faithful to us and who has redeemed us in our brokenness again and again, that's when we'll be more effective witnesses. Not when we point to ourselves, but we point to the one. Just as any of you know who've ever been in a 12-step program, that the best person to help a struggling addict as a struggling addict who has found hope. As D.T. Niles said, the church is a bunch of beggars who are teaching and showing other beggars where to find bread. We just point. There's the bread. There's the faithful one. This is our calling in the world. Jesus uses us, even us. So friends, what does Jesus do with doubting and struggling people? He loves us and he does these things. He challenges our minds. He gives us the confidence that our faith is not based on a myth, but on clear evidence to assure us that our faith rests not on a myth, but on the truth that God has acted in history. Second, he comforts our hearts. He reminds us that it's not the strength of our faith, but the faithfulness of Jesus that carries us to the end. And so we don't have to be afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of them. And he commissions our community. He sends us doubting, struggling people in his power to point to the faithful one. I love verse 41. It says, while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, yet they believe. The news is too good to be true, and yet it is so good it must be true. No one could make this up. And so, friends, rest in the truth that Christ has risen. He loves you. He is holding on to you. And he will carry us right to the end. Let's pray.
we thank you, uh, Lord God, that you welcome our questions and doubts and struggles and fears. And that we are not, in the end, saved uh, by the, the, the strength and perfection of our faith, but by the faithful one who has lived and died and risen for us. And help us wherever we are, especially want to pray for those who are deeply struggling, um, either because of intellectual doubts or because of something that might be going on in their lives, that they would have even just the tiniest bit of faith to look to Jesus, knowing that it is him, the faithful one, that holds them fast. We pray this in Christ's name.